power of Jesus' name. Salvation, forgiveness, healing, life, glory, and exaltation and worship. Authority. Even the privilege of suffering like he did. And then the right to be called his sons and daughters. His brothers and sisters. There's power in Jesus' name because names represent people. And the person named Jesus is the one who does and has and is all those things. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of this body. And when your head, when your leader is God himself, it's best to listen to what he says and then to do it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. You can go ahead and take a seat. I'm going to pray as you do that. Heavenly Father, you are so great. And you showed your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, hopeless, sent Jesus to die for us. This was based on your character and your love for us. We lack, there's nothing in us that you would look at and see beauty or charm or anything by which you may be swayed. And yet by your own goodwill, your benevolence, you chose to save us. And we praise you for that. So now as we consider Jesus, our head, our leader at Summit Church, and the things that he says, the living word of God, I pray that you would inspire us to do those things and equip us and empower us to do those things. And we do pray in the name of Jesus Christ, according to the person and the relationship we have in him, we say amen. So this morning, we want to think about what, is, what does Jesus say? Consider the power of the name of Jesus. What, what does Jesus say? John 15 is where we're going to start. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I, has kept, as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The Lord Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hangs on this one thing, love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And to love your neighbor just like you love yourself, which for us is an awful lot. And this Jesus is not saying that you, you earn his love by keeping his commandments. He's saying that if you put all your effort, everything you have into loving him and loving others, you will receive what you're going after. If you go after love, you are living the commandments of Jesus Christ. And that's where Jesus is. If you set aside love, you've set aside Jesus. But if you go after Jesus, you will find love. Who are the real followers of God? We've been talking the past months about real church. Who are the real followers of God? What is the real church? 
and it's those who are marked by love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, the Lord said. If you love one another, if you have love for one another. And then we've been learning the past month or so from Romans 12, 9 through 12 so far, what genuine love is. And the way that the ancient writers, like Paul put this, wasn't to use the word genuine in his own language. He was saying genuine or sincerity is the opposite of something. And genuineness, the opposite of, of is, genuineness is the opposite of uh, hypocrisy is the way that they thought about it. Now we think of hypocrites and we're like, oh, it's someone who says one thing and does another. But when Paul wrote it, that's not what he was thinking. He was thinking about the ancient Greek theater. He was thinking about performers, fakers, posers, actors, pretenders. So the hypocrite takes the word of God and twists it and tries to say, how can I act this out that it would be to my benefit, for my gain and my own satisfaction? The hypocrite cares nothing for God or the people that God loves. The only thing the hypocrite loves is herself. Her life is a show to get what she wants. She's on a stage, the star of her own show, and she's following a script that she's written for her own benefit and purposes. But genuine love is this. Abhorring what is evil, hating what is evil, holding fast to what is good, loving each other with brotherly affection, outdoing one another and showing honor. Genuine love means zeal and fervor in your service to the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patience in tribulation, and being constant in prayer. And as we close out this section where Paul wrote what genuine love is, as he gives us a picture of genuine love, we look in verse 13 and see that genuine love is sharing with God's people and relentlessly pursuing hospitality. Boom. Keep my hand on the paper. I bet you're like, yeah, keep your paper. We want God to send wind so that we're not so hot. Genuine love is sharing with God's people. Look at the outset of verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. So who are the saints? Literally, the word means the holy. These are those who are set apart by God. God's people, the, the church. And their needs are many and varied. Needs, as it's written, is a general purpose word. So we would say things like, I need to pay my bills. I need to go to work. We need food and water to live. Some of our children would say, I need toys. Or some of your teenagers would say, I need a car. A family might need childcare because of a job change that's happened. A sister in our body might need healing. Need is a general purpose word. And as we think about the needs of the church, it's all-encompassing. The things that we need, the things that we need because we lack. There's those of us who lack, we're poor, and we need things. We need food and water and a place to stay and clothing. And there's things that we need to accomplish ministry. Those are needs. All these things are needs. So the saints are believers. The saints are the church, and their needs are manied and varied. And contributing to those needs means sharing. Now, this is where it gets interesting because we read that in almost every modern translation, and we think, oh, this is about giving. But the word there is the word that, that we often use for fellowship in other places. So contributing means sharing, taking part in, participating in the needs of the saints. So th this type of sharing, this contributing to the needs of the saints is not just giving, it's participating in the lives of others, and it's bi-directional. So I don't just give 
I receive. It's taking on the needs of the body as your own and then doing something about it. So you, or most of us here, welcome guests if you're present with us, but most of us, you're part of this body at Summit Church. And you share with the body because you share in the body. For sake of time, I looked at Scripture and saw two pictures of a sharing church. Two pictures. And I would say it's summed up like this. A sharing church is focused on others. Someone who is focused on sharing says, because I am part of the body, I treat the needs of others as my own. We see this in Acts 2 and Acts 4 then. Very similar passages where it says in Acts 2, all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had any need. So when you see needs within the church, you share to meet those needs. And the, the, the pattern in the church historically has often been this. When I see a need in the church, I go tell a pastor, an elder, a deacon, or whatever the leadership structure of that church might be and say, hey, go take care of this because this person is in need. And that's contrary to the way that we should think about it. Your first reaction at Summit Church when you see a need should be to go to that person and contribute toward that person that the need might be met. And you might respond to that, well, what if I don't have enough to handle their need? I would say, let God take care of that. Don't dismiss the power to multiply and honor the gift. And then remember this, we give together as well. So we have deacons in our church who are responsible in part for benevolence, that is, giving to people who are in need. Sometimes when we put our things together in terms of things that we contribute, we can make more progress when we do that together. So when you see a need, go and meet it. But if you recognize that need is just way too huge for you to deal with, come together with others, and the deacons are there to help you do that. So a sharing church is focused on others. And ultimately, a sharing church is focused on God. The person who shares within the body of Christ says, my submission and service to God will bring praise and glory to God. 2 Corinthians 9, amazing passage. He who supplies... Seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And then listen to this part or read along if you see it there. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. We think of sharing, giving, contributing as enabling earthly activities, right? So we dig wells in Africa, we build things, we send people out, we feed people, we clothe people. Those are good things that we must do because Scripture commands them. But our highest objective is to glorify God in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And the awesome thing that happens when we, when we share and give to people is that we use these gospel-centric ways to share with people that, that practically do things. And they complete acts of ministry. But in that, the recipients of the, of the gifts that we give the beneficiaries of the gifts out of our benevolence, then praise God. And that's the whole point of why we're here. That's why we're gathered together. So when you share with God's people, more people will be praising God. When God is praised and glorified, you're fulfilling 
the mission of the church and the reason that God has joined us together. And this ties directly into the second part of the verse. So genuine love is sharing with God's people and it's relentlessly pursuing hospitality. Look at the end of verse 13. Seek to show hospitality. The word seeking there is quite interesting. If you look throughout the, the New Testament, when it's in the Gospels especially, that word is translated into English as pursue, persecute. This means to relentlessly go after, to seek. So the idea is aggressive here. So it's not like when you call customer service and the person is like, uh, I'll see what I can do. This is the person on the customer service line saying, I will stake my life on meeting your customer service need, and I will do everything possible. I will die to fulfill your customer service need. It's aggressive. It's not seeing what we'll do. It's exhausting ourselves. Relentless pursuit. And hospitality. Now, this should challenge your thinking. Seek to show hospitality. In our culture, the word has really come to mean things like having people over for dinner. Or we would say, maybe a broader term, open up my home. Conversation, games. I want to challenge that thinking this morning, according to the word of God. There's nothing wrong with those things at all. There's nothing wrong with having people over. There's nothing wrong with preparing amazing hors d'oeuvres for people. But the way that we understand in our culture hospitality is incomplete. We've taken a part of it and made, the whole, made, made that the whole thing. Because the biblical core for hospitality is the love of strangers. It's a compound word, the way Paul wrote it. So it's put together from philos, we would say uh, deep friendship or brotherly love, and then xenos. Charles, did I say those right? Wait, you're not an ancient Greek. Never mind. Compound word. Love, brotherly love. Xenos. Strangers, outsiders. Brotherly love is rooted in action and experience. Band of brothers kind of love. Focused on common vision and goals together. I think of Philippians 1.27. Standing firm with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not afraid of anything. That is brotherly love. And then Zenos, who are strangers? Strangers are people you do not know. This is important. Your friends are not strangers. Your small group, I hope, are not strangers. Strangers are outsiders, people who are strange to you. And there's a fancy word in English based on the same Greek word, and it's xenophobia. Maybe you've heard of that. If you're a Scrabble player, maybe you've seen that. Phobia, fear, xenos, stranger, outsider. Hospitality is the opposite of being afraid of outsiders. The heart of hospitality is welcoming strangers. You are to relentlessly pursue that, that which welcomes strangers into your life and all, above all else, into your spiritual family. We're moving from page five into six and seven, and then we're done. So you can hang with it. You can do it. I know it's uncomfortable, but this is good. Why do we welcome strangers into our lives and into our spiritual family? Because in his great mercy, that is exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. God did not plan for all of eternity past and then send Jesus at the perfect time that he might serve you hors d'oeuvres and play board games with you. He sent Jesus to make you a son and a daughter. But now in Christ Jesus, this is what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
I was a stranger. I was an outsider. God made me a son. Jesus made me a brother. I think this idea of being a spiritual outsider is a challenge for some of us if we were raised in the culture of a church and maybe in a strong Christian family. Because for all the advantages that come with understanding the gospel when we're young, there's kind of a, a disadvantage that you might say with that. And that's if you've never felt like you're outside the family of God. It's harder to appreciate what it means to be brought, in, be brought into it. It's a miraculous transformation. That's why we go to the Word of God. The Bible tells us the truth about ourselves. And we see the miracle then of what, we've, what God has done. We were darkness and he made us into light. That's what the Bible said. He brought us from death to life. We were strangers, enemies of God even, adopted as his sons and daughters. And because God pursued us with genuine love, we pursue him in the same way and others with that same love. So if you struggle with hospitality, step one is not to start planning a bunch of events for your home. It's to renew your mind with the truth of God's word. Think about this. The Buddhist can invite me into his home. The Hindu can invite me into his home. The cult member will definitely invite me into his home. And even those who deny God and say God does not exist, they can still open their homes. What do we have at Summit Church that is different than all those people? And it's the power of the word of God. So if you're like, I, I don't get, hospitality scares me. I don't know what to do. And I'm scared that people will see the, the crack in the drywall on my ceiling and think I'm cheap, which I am, by the way. The truth is that we go to the word of God. And by the word of God, our fear is overcome. Our selfishness and greed and all the excuses that we make for why we cannot seek to show hospitality, love to strangers is overcome. And God stirs up in us true zeal. So, Gobbling up, devouring, and obeying the word of God. That's how Summit Church will strengthen the pillar that we have that we say is personal evangelism. And what stands in our way? So not, not the government. The government doesn't stand in a way. Not the liberal media. Not the military-industrial complex. Those things don't stand in our way. Not even death itself, Scripture says, can get in the way of the church of God. What stands in our way? I thought this past week of three things that the people of Summit do that are anti-hospitality. So I get it this, this morning, you did not wake up um, praying to God that you could sit in the hot sun and then have someone admonish you from the pulpit. And yet here we are. These are not theoretical things that I'm talking about. They're real things that we do because we're broken people. One thing that kills our hospitality or makes us anti-hospitality is focusing on our rights more than the gospel. When we do that, it kills our hospitality. Read 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. It's two, two chapters out of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And he says, For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might say some. I do it all what? For the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And then he writes at the end of chapter 10, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many. Why? That they may be saved. What if by giving up your rights, you could introduce people to the kingdom of God? Would we as a church be willing to do that? When we focus on our own rights more than the gospel, we're standing in the way of that part of hospitality that we're to love and reach out to strangers. But if we make them more important than ourselves, God will honor that. The other thing, contributing 
to disunity, being divisive. So at the end of Philippians 1.28, it says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Who are the them there? That's your opponents, the enemies. And what is the clear sign? If you read verse 27, it is this, that we are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by our opponents. When we are unified and able to work together for the sake of the gospel, despite our differences that we all have, we preach the gospel to outsiders. They see us and they say, what is with that unity? There's something, there's something wrong with the way that I'm living because I'm so fractured. But when I look at the people of God, they're unified and serving and working for him. They must be saved. There's something different about them. But when we're divided, the, the world looks at us and our enemies look at us and say, you're all hypocrites. You say this, but you do others. All you do is argue and fight with each other. That's not a clear sign. But when we're together, it is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but to us to say, God has changed us. He's done something different here. And then the last thing is when we forget who we're actually serving. Jesus said this in Matthew 25, and you could preach a month of sermons on Matthew 25, but he said this, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. We welcome the stranger because in doing so, we're welcoming Christ. Will all those who you welcome and reach out to join the family of God? No, that won't happen because it's up to God, the king who decides who's in the kingdom. But do not lose heart, brothers and sisters. Don't be afraid of strangers. Don't give up. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. If we serve everyone, great and small, rich and poor, like we want to serve Christ. We both honor Christ and participate in his divine plan of salvation for those people. As we close out here, I want you to look ahead to verse 14. What does it say? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The word that's translated persecute there is the same word that's earlier said in verse 13, seek after. Through the ups and downs of history, there's been this long pattern of the world saying to the church, I will look for you, I will find you, I will take from you, and in some cases, I will kill you. And the way that the, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts by the power of Christ and his resurrection, the church then responds to that and says, I will look for you, I will find you, I will give you what I have, and I will love you. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you have power to make this possible. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your hard words. Knowing that we have all things in you. Forgive us, Father, that we get in the way of your plans and your will. We don't want to do it. And that in our flesh, we find ourselves doing it. you, Father. We do want Summit Church to be a place that is marked by contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality. So make us into what you would have us be, and we know what that is because you've shown us in your word. 
do this, God, not for our own pleasure, though we receive pleasure from it, or our own benefit, though we do gain greatly from obedience to you. Do this for your glory, God. It's the name of your son, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Amen. We love God's word in this church, don't we? Listen to these words. Holy, there's none like you. There's none besides you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. So let's ask as we sing these words that God would indeed stir our hearts to love those, to be hospitable, to be patient and kind, to stretch far for the sake of love. Let's stand up together as we get ready to leave and sing this song.
sing this. I will build. The Apostle Paul is leaving, likely to never see the people again, as far as he understands it. And he says to the group of people he's talking to, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. The way we build our lives is on the word of God. And the word of God and the word of his grace is also able to do this, according to Paul, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Sometimes we hear a message like this about giving contributing and sharing and opening up our lives. And it's tempting to say, I want to go to one of those churches where they just give me the good stuff all the time. Ice cream and cake. And they never say anything hard to me. This message is hard, but if you, if you think rightly, you realize the great benefit that God has given us in Christ Jesus. So the example that I think of is with my puppy. So I have a puppy. We got her as a COVID dog. Well, we didn't know she was going to be a COVID dog, but she became that. What was it? March 16th or something, we picked up Esther, our golden retriever puppy. And Esther loves to eat things. And one of them I can't say here because you'll call Todd and say I shouldn't be up here. But the other thing that she likes to eat is compost. She goes right to the compost pit. She's like, I'm going to eat a rotten peel from a banana. I'm going to eat a rotten peel from an avocado. And this is amazing. And if you've trained dogs before, you know that you don't try to fight the dog for things. You just create a fight. What you do is say, hey, dog. And sometimes I say, hey, dumb dog. What you want to do is trade. I'm going to trade with you, Esther, because what I have here in this chicken, that I, it's burnt, and I don't want to eat it, but you're willing to eat it because you're a dog. What I have is better than the rotten avocado that you think is so awesome right now. And when we realize what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, we recognize that all the things of this earth that we like to cling to are rotten banana peels and avocados. And when we throw them away, we receive a greater inheritance promise to all those who are sanctified. So yes, you must give something up for Jesus Christ. Yes, it is hard to open your life up to those around us, people who think differently than we are and look differently than we do and have different customs and traditions, but it's all worth it to give those things up for the sake of those people and the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we have a promise in, he in heaven that's far greater than the things we cling to right now. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters in Christ, and may the God and his word build you up that you may share in what he plans to give to all his people. You are loved.